The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. As we continue with a fairly intensive delve into the issue of psychedelics, I'm delighted and honored today to have on Professor Matthew Johnson. Matt is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. In fact, he, I think, is the first professor academic ever to receive a named chair in psychedelic studies. He's a Susan Hill Ward professor in psychedelics and consciousness, and he's recently stepped into the shoes of Roland Griffiths, another distinguished professor in this area, to become the director of the Center at Johns Hopkins on Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. I mean, he's really one of the outstanding researchers in the world these days. He's been working on this issue since the early 2000s, mentoring, writing, publishing, you name it. So, Matt, hey, it's a pleasure to have you on Psychoactive. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor to chat with you, Ethan. Remind me, I mean, you know, we've been bumping into one another recently at these psychedelics conferences, the Wonderland Miami uh, conference in November, and then the Horizons conference in December in New York. But do you recall when was it we first met? 
Yeah, I believe it was when I was president of a Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter at the University of Vermont. I had founded that chapter, and I invited you to come speak for us, which you did. Uh-huh. And I believe that was the first. That must have been 2003 or so? That sounds about right, yeah. So, Matt, you've probably done more studies involving giving psychedelics to human subjects than almost anybody, or certainly in the top tier. So can you just walk us through what does it involve, sort of launching one of these things, getting the approval of the right institutions, screening for the right participants in the trial? What does that look like? The first phase, which folks normally don't think about, is like hustling up the funding. So, you know, through somebody, you've gotten traditionally philanthropy for us with psychedelics, but you hustle up the funding. The next one is the Institutional Review Board, the IRB. They call it an ethics board in in England. It's the committee at your university that decides whether this research is ethical to do or not. And they can require any number of changes in order before allowing you to do that work. Once you have addressed the IRB's questions, then you administer to the FDA. And then it's the same thing. Any number of experts from different divisions of FDA can weigh in, maybe you know, chemists and psychologists and others all weigh in with other concerns they have on your protocol. And they can either approve it or they can put it on clinical hold, meaning you have to change things before we approve it. And then if they approve things, then you got to go to the DEA, you know, the drug enforcement people, and get permission from them. And part of the process for the DEA approval is for them to go to an independent section of FDA. And yes, I already mentioned we've already gone to FDA, but this is <laughs> redundant. They go back to the FDA as part of the DEA process and get the FDA's approval. And then the DEA gets back to you. And so those are broad steps. That's what it is. And that takes anywhere from like six months to a year depending on how much pushback you get on any number of these steps. So it's a big bureaucratic process. And then with respect to the recruitment and screening of participants in the trials? We have fairly uh, stringent screening criteria. So most people who apply don't qualify, and it could be for any number of medical, including psychiatric reasons, depending on the study. So there's a phone screening. Well, actually, for most of these now, there's a, a, a web form as the initial phase of screening. And then we call people up on the phone if they meet initial eligibility criteria and do some more screening on the phone. And then for a subset of those folks, then they come to the lab for two days for four or five hours at least. So it's a substantial investment of time to do these extensive in-person screenings. And and this is more than, say, for example, like an undergraduate psychology class experiment you might participate in where you, you know, fill out a form for five minutes to screen for it. This is you know, several days of extensive medical and psychological evaluation. And so after that, if someone then qualifies with all of, you know, all of the criteria for the study, then they move into a screening phase where they prepare anywhere from four to eight hours, depending on the study, with the two people, the guides or the therapist who will be with them during their psilocybin session. And then you have the psilocybin session, or in some studies there's multiple sessions, some studies there's one, and then typically the day after each psilocybin session, there's what we call an integration session where we discuss the session. I see. And I know there's been some issues raised about, about there being you know, a disproportionately low number of, of Black people, people of color generally, but especially mm-hmm. Black people in these trials. What's your experience with that? And what are the challenges? And how far have you gotten? Yeah, so it's, it's been a challenge across the field. I mean, you know, the demographics skew white, and that happens to be consistent with the data on who is using 
psilocybin illicitly. It tends to be a white male thing if you look at those numbers. That isn't to say that all the people that are, are, are you know, applying are people who have used psilocybin, but it just it might speak to a common interest for whatever reason. There may be more subcultural interest in certain you know subcultures than than in others. So it tends to be more of a thing that seems to be of interest in in white circles than in say black circles. We do have uh, you know representation. It's not at the level of minorities, including black folks, in the research, but not at the levels that would be you know uh, proportional to society you know to their placement in society yeah. so we need to do a better job and you know kind of like other groups in this area are have been doing a number of things you know talking about where what, what particular you know where we're advertising at we recently hired a person to help us with additional recruitment efforts to in part to help look into some of these issues to increase minority representation so it's a challenge there's no you know silver bullet solution but it's something to keep doing our best on. So Matt, I mean, obviously, when you started doing this work 15 years ago, it was hesitant to talk about it. Now, major research universities, not just your own, but I think Harvard and Yale and NYU and University of California and Imperial College of England, all setting up these major research programs. I mean, now when you talk about it, is there a major transformation in the way that other academics way outside the field of psychedelic study respond to this? Or do you feel like the word's still not really out there very much? Oh, there's been tremendous progress. I mean, we're still not there. There's a lot of people that kind of like just kind of don't get it. You just get this smirk when you bring. I remember one time going to the IRB, the the review board at the at the uni, university, you know, to get studies approved, and just like this, this look like like you're talking about a Cheech and Chong movie, you know, something funny. It's like it's almost like oh, you're trying to get away. We know what you're up to. Like like this sort of sideways smirk of like. All right, you know, you're giving people mushrooms. Oh, of course, they're going to feel like they're spiritual and I don't know, whatever, <laughs> when they're when they're loaded up on mushrooms. I You get a sense of that. But the more and more people, I think, have seen these results and like, uh, you know, you know, results in drama psychiatry and result, these. Oh, gosh, the results with cancer patients. And, and to me, it's just like this bizarre thing of like sometimes you get this little feedback, like this smirk of like as if this isn't very serious or eh, this is a kind of a cutesy thing. And then like you've just run like say a cancer participant and afterwards like they're just, you know, crying about this, opening up this kind of space in their life where they're able to talk with their loved ones about their dying and how it's transformed their life. And it just like to square this with the, like kind of the Cheech and Chong joke level, there's such a contrast between those two things. Matt, I've heard you talk about how sometimes some of the most difficult parts of a psychedelic trip while you're doing a therapeutic session can prove to be the most valuable and that patients can even, you know, come out of it feeling that way. But have you had to deal with situations where people were still struggling months later as a result of having been in a trial? Not months later. There have been people who have have struggled in the days and to a degree, you know, weeks following the sessions. And this is sort of a difficult thing to describe. And, and the big picture is the, the process, I, I think, ideally should be viewed as healthy. Like a lot of times, especially when dealing with some of the issues we're dealing with, like the treatment is hard. It raises difficult issues. And those those things that come to mind during the session don't necessarily disappear once the drug's out of your system. 
But this is in common with other successful forms of therapy. I mean, I think of the the treatment of trauma, where the whole point is that it's going to be difficult. You have to process that that material. So that's I think that's an important backdrop. Um, now there have been some people, and we warn people in our consent that you know sometimes people. The way I think of it is, you can have something like a midlife crisis. You know, you can really these sessions can really prompt questions for someone that sometimes they can be stuck psychologically and feel they could benefit from seeing a professional to help them process. So now this isn't I'm not talking about anyone dealing with any a psychotic process or anything like that, but folks that really are kind of you know the psychedelics have stuck have left them stuck in a in a in an unresolved space. So we do warn people that this can happen and that some people may benefit or may feel that they could benefit from seeking out additional professional help. In other words, the psychedelic sessions, for whatever reason you come into the study, they can potentially raise issues for you that you might feel called to then, you know, need to you know see a therapist over. So for example, you might be in a study over smoking cessation, but some you might have an experience of trauma from decades ago that's resurfaced that all of a sudden you feel like you need to process and in fact if that if that does happen you're going to be best off if you do see a professional to process that now that may not fit into the time frame of a particular study say a, a psychedelic study for smoking cessation so one may reach out and we've given some referrals and and this is a, certainly a minority of cases but a referrals for folks that feel like they want to pick up on some therapy with with a therapist who is um, not going to view psychedelics negatively who's not going to kind of hear their experience and then sort of pathologize the experience itself because they, they used psilocybin. Wait, I'm curious, you know, you wrote a pretty important piece a few years ago with, I think, maybe it was with Roland Griffiths and also a very another very prominent drug researcher, Ash Kenningfield, in which you talked about where might psilocybin and potentially other psychedelics fit into the Controlled Substances Act, right? Controlled Substances Act is that 50-year-old law that determines whether drugs are going to be put in schedules one, two, three, four, or 5, where one are drugs that supposedly have no medical value and a great risk to the public health, and then, you know, descending on downward for drugs that have a, you know, a good medical value but also a risk to the public, and then down to the lowest level, which are seen as relatively non-dangerous. The basic idea of ranking drugs according to the risk and medical benefit makes some sense, but that the Controlled Substances Act, where you have drugs like heroin, marijuana, and psilocybin all in Schedule 1, all notwithstanding, you know, fairly substantial evidence that they do have medical benefit in a process where a federal police agency, the DEA, has a huge amount of say about where drugs are scheduled. What do you really think about the Controlled Substances Act? Yeah, that's a great question, Ethan, because it, the framing of the paper was, you know, given the Controlled Substances Act is the way these substances are regulated, the question is, if psilocybin, based on phase three data, looks safe and efficacious, how should it fit into the Controlled Substances Act? And that's kind of a narrow framing. That's not, you know, taking on the question of should the Controlled Substances Act exist or should it exist in anything like its present form? That's a much bigger, you know, question. And the Controlled Substances Act is not likely to go away by the time, you know, within probably the next two, three, four years is not going to be, you know, it's still going to be the law of the land, most likely by the time psilocybin uh, it gets through phase three trials. So it's sort of a, a very pragmatic in that sense. But what I really think about the Controlled Substances Act, I mean, as you know, uh, you know, analysis after analysis has found in the United States, in the UK, 
in, in the Netherlands, in Europe, experts in all of these areas, drug experts, have been probed systematically in the correlation between the ranking, the scheduling of drugs and their perceived harms by experts is abysmal. You know, mm-hmm. and this is including both illegal and legal drugs. And so alcohol will invariably show up near the top of, of these lists in terms of harm to self, harm to individuals, far higher than many of the illegal substances. And psilocybin mushrooms consistently fall at the very, very bottom, both in terms of harm to self and harm to others. So that we do make the point that there are risks. And, and when we talk about technically, when we talk about abuse liability, that's a confusing term that that does part of that is addiction liability the propensity for that drug to be used in a compulsive fashion we know very very well that psilocybin and the other classic psychedelics like LSD mescaline DMT are not addictive but abuse liability in the context of the controlled substances act also refers to just the risks of the drugs the liability of using the drug so not necessarily related to addiction potential but just hey are there dangers to the drug that can harm the self or others and you know are showing a signal at the public health level so now yes there are some harms particularly in people with psychiatric vulnerability there's good reason to believe people with predisposition towards schizophrenia can be destabilized Anyone can have a so-called bad trip, and particularly if they're not prepared and if they're at a high dose and in a chaotic setting around people they don't trust, they can freak out, to put it, to use technical language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they could be at a concert and they're hauled out by the paramedics and the police and then things escalate. Occasionally, there's an accident. Occasionally, someone dies. It should be no surprise as with any other intoxicating uh, substance. Very rare when you plot it against the other, all of the other substances, legal and illegal. But nonetheless, there is some risk there. So there is some mild abuse liability, again, not addiction liability, but abuse liability in terms of having those those dangers. The big problem with the Controlled Substances Act, in my opinion, is that it is based on two fundamentally distinct categories, two dimensions. One, whether there's accepted medical use. And number two, um, what's the abuse liability? Schedule one is for substances with no accepted medical use but high abuse liability. You then move to schedule two, and this is where things like a lot of the opioids and methamphetamine and cocaine are at. There's accepted medical use, uh, at least in narrow circumstances, but there's high abuse liability. And then all of the other schedules as we go down to then schedule three to schedule four – the cat definition of all of those is there's accepted medical use and there's abuse liability, but less so than the higher category. So Schedule 3 has less abuse liability than the, the substances in Schedule 2 and 4, less than 3, etc. The problem is there is no category for mild or moderate, call it what you will, you know, mild abuse liability, but no accepted medical value. Which is the case right now because – and this was determined through judicial precedent in the early years, not at the beginning of the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, but through the courts afterwards. Accepted medical value has become to be defined as explicit FDA approval. So by definition, regardless of the science, until it reaches – has FDA approval for a disorder, it has no accepted medical use. But right now, again, there's no category for you know, no accepted medical use but mild to moderate abuse potential. So it has to remain right now in Schedule 1, which is 
absolutely absurd. There's also a catch-22 aspect to this, because they talk about accepted medical use, which requires FDA approval. But then if you look at something with marijuana, it's medical value. Forever and ever, the government was throwing up obstacles, right, to allowing it to be approved in that way. And even today, marijuana persists in Schedule 1. And then you think about things like uh, pharmaceutical heroin, right, which is now being prescribed to people who have been addicted to street heroin in a half dozen countries in Europe and Canada. You know, clear evidence from abroad of its medical value. It's also approved for management of pain in some countries. But once again, still in Schedule 1, right? Now, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I see, you know, you look at a drug like fentanyl, which is, you know, it's death rate, its deadliness in America in recent years and in Canada has been astronomical, and it's properly not in Schedule 1 because it does have legitimate medical value. And so in a way, there, there almost seems like there's a bias and maybe in favor. You know, you can have a fentanyl or cocaine with oral problems associated with them in Schedule 2, allowed to be prescribed in limited medical conditions. But then these drugs in Schedule 1 that just, I mean, it seems to me they should basically eliminate. Is there any basis at all, really, for having a category of Schedule 1. Gosh, I mean, you really are getting to the question of, in one sense, of should there be a Controlled Substances Act? Well, let me bring you back here. So the research at Johns Hopkins, I mean, one of the things is that you're at a research institute, which, you know, and both you personally and, and your colleagues, you know, have experience in administering all sorts of controlled substances and illicit, what would otherwise be illegal drugs, not just to animals, uh, non-human animals, but to human beings, right? I mean, at Johns Hopkins, they're right. giving, you know, not just psilocybin now, but also, I think, cocaine and amphetamine and even heroin to, to human subjects in very controlled circumstances. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I've been principal investigator or lead scientist on studies administering a number of these substances, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine, and particularly our group, the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, that has been in operation for, for almost a half century. I mean, all of the substances you've mentioned, all of those drug classes, um, you know, we're experts at, at administering them to human uh, beings under the right conditions. And it's all about what the appropriate conditions are, you know, for, say, mm-hmm. administering cocaine or administering psilocybin. And, and those conditions are different across these different drugs, given their different risk profiles. Yeah. But, you know, in the early years, I mean, back this is actually before you and I even met, but in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was involved in an effort to get heroin prescription trials going in the U.S. and Canada the way that they had been doing in in Europe, you know, uh, in prescribing pharmaceutical heroin in a clinic setting to people who had been struggling with addiction to street heroin, right? And there were huge health benefits to their switching from street drugs into legally produced and prescribed uh, pharmaceutical heroin. And so this group, we, we eventually called ourselves NAOMI, which stood for the North American Opioid Medication Initiative. And among the professors who participate in this group was one of your colleagues, a fairly distinguished drug researcher named George Bigelow. And so I was able Mm -hmm. to get a little funding and to do a couple of little pilot studies, one up in Canada and one at Johns Hopkins, where I think George was involved in seeing whether or not longtime heroin users, street heroin users, could tell the difference between pharmaceutical heroin or Dilaudid, hydromorphone, right, in a controlled Mm double-blind study. Right. And what he Mm -hmm. found in this small study was, in fact, I think that people could not tell the difference. Unfortunately, I don't think he ever published the damn paper. Um, But what struck me at that time was that Johns Hopkins, together, I think, with Columbia and Wayne State, 
which at that time had a drug program headed by the former head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Bob Schuster, were among the mm -hmm. few places in the country which were administering not just Schedule II drugs like amphetamine and cocaine to human subjects, but also administering Schedule I drugs. Do I have that right? Yeah. And in fact, I do wonder, I, I suspect those data were published with hydromorphone because I either that or I have a really good memory from presentation that George uh, Bigelow has given because I, I could see those graphs in my head. <laughs> in fact, it's just striking to the pharmacologist nerd in me, you know, with with the left right adjustment on the dose effect curve to use my nerdy uh, pharmacology lingo. They're identical, you know, hydromorphone mm -hmm. and heroin. In other words, yeah, whether you're administering three milligrams for it to achieve a certain effect or 30 milligrams is ultimately like trivial, right? Like you give what, however much you need to give to achieve that certain effect, you lay the curves on top of each other. And it's they're the same drug, which is really getting back to what we were talking about earlier. Hydromorphone is what? Schedule two, you know, but basically by any any level of science, these are the same drug if you're talking about a pharmaceutically pure um, supply. Right. Well, I mean, it's the basic point that if you were to snap your fingers and all the people around America getting hydromorphone allowed it in a hospital setting were suddenly getting heroin, nobody would ever know the difference. And conversely, if you could snap your fingers and all the people taking uh, heroin illegally were somehow getting, uh, you know, uh, delouted, uh, you know, uh, they also wouldn't know the difference, right? That one was a drug right. that's essentially demonized in the broader culture. The other is the one that's perceived in a medicalized environment. But I think the key point here was that Hopkins seemed to have some experience together with a few other research institutions in allowing or getting permission to do research with Schedule I drugs on human beings. And I wondered if that's one of the reasons why Johns Hopkins, I mean, obviously the fact of Roland Griffiths being there as being a sort of pioneering research in this area, but I wonder if that played a role in Johns Hopkins emerging as a leader in this area as well, that there already was a, a university experience in doing research with Schedule One drugs, which is notoriously difficult to get permission for, but has always been technically legally possible. Right. Yeah. I certainly think that was a, you know, most likely a necessary. I mean, you could have technically done it without it, but practically a necessary, but not sufficient condition. Um, so there's not a whole lot of folks that have had that experience. You mentioned Wayne State, which it, you know that program's you know still still running strong, and a few others around the country that have very strong human behavioral pharmacology lab programs where they administer these types of drugs, including Schedule One drugs. But, you know, ours was the only group that went ahead in, in the early days, at least, uh, uh, you know, so you had to have the desire to do this kind of crazy thing, which, you know, 20 years ago, it did sound kind of crazy. Like, you know, it, it sounded more like, like a career killer to be interested in, in psychedelics, you know, good luck getting a grant in that, good luck rising through the, 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 the promotion pathway at, at a place like Hopkins that's very demanding. So, so listen, as I understand it, you know, you're at University of Vermont, you're doing your graduate work, you know, your mentor there is Warren Bickle, a very prominent drug researcher. You're thinking how nice it would be to, to do psychedelics research. You land up at Johns Hopkins and you find out that, you know, Roland Griffiths, this distinguished drug researcher, you know, been working on cocaine, nicotine, a whole range of other drugs, is actually interested in doing something on psychedelics. So what was that like for you in that moment, like 15 years ago? Where it really started was even before that, my undergraduate advisor had gone to school with Warren Bickle, who you mentioned was my graduate advisor and who was a really big deal, not in psychedelics, but in drug research in general, in addiction research. And when I literally talked to him on the phone at a phone interview 
for the University of Vermont to be a gra his graduate student. He said, Matt, if you do, if you come here, if you do well, you go to Hopkins, the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, where I did my postdoc in the 1990s, and you do a postdoc there, and that's the path. And these are the conferences you go to, and this is the postdoc you take, and blah, blah, blah. You know, he very much said from the very beginning, like, I hadn't even gone there yet. You know, he's like, if you do grad school here, here's where you do your postdoc. And so fast forward several years, had done well in grad school with him. And and I had and I had met Roland at conferences and whatnot, and, and so I had sort of an informal interview, like, you know, being a couple years out from finishing. And, and, and but but. But this was sort of the formal interview where I came down and visited, you know, the lab at Hopkins and there for the total reason that Rome was just known as being, you know, the, one of the world's uh, most important caffeine research. He demonstrated the withdrawal syndrome of caffeine in humans. He had lots of nicotine research, tons of research on sedative hypnotics, played a strong hand in developing the abuse liability methods that the FDA uses to evaluate new medications that might have abuse liability. So just a legend in the behavioral pharmacology area, particularly human behavioral pharmacology. So it was that stuff that was the attraction, you know, and, and a strong behavioral basis to all of the drug stuff, you know, strong behavioral psychology a basis to analyzing drug effects, which is very consistent with my perspective and the training that I have. And so, but he tells me there, you know, with his office door closed when I'm interviewing and um, he's, he kind of swears me to secrecy. I don't know. I, it might've been my firstborn that he, he wanted me to swear, but um, <laughs> it was really, it was like really serious. And Roland is an intense dude. And I mean, like, he's like, he's looking at you in his eye across from, <laughs> across from the desk and, and, and it, swearing to secrecy, he's you know he's he's got this. He has just started this this study with high doses of psilocybin, looking at spiritual experiences in spiritually interested people. And you know I'm just like, get the fuck out of here. You know <laughs> like like why really like really you know. But, and he didn't want it in in the public, uh, anything in the public yet, because he thought, and I think very wisely that if it had gotten out there that. The study might have been shut down prematurely. That there might have been sort of sort of this hysteria about it. So he did. He's very quiet in getting it approved and running the study. So anyway, I promised to keep that you know you know secret. And then it was another you know a couple of years had to you know stay secret until that first study was 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 published. And well, you know, one of the things that struck me. I mean, that first study that Roland Griffiths and William Richard, who you mentioned, Bill Richards, who's been you know key in this field for decades. And Bob Jesse, who's kind of been a quiet behind-the-scenes force and a fellow I don't think I know, McCann, published that article in a distinguished journal about psilocybin and mystical experience. And I remember mm -hmm. wondering, like, and in fact, I think you're actually acknowledged as a young colleague who's makes some comments on the study. Right. And I remember thinking, why did they start off with a study about psychedelics and mysticism. Like, why wasn't it psychedelics and alcoholism or psychedelics and depression or psychedelics and PTSD or the things you're seeing talk about now? But I think what I'm beginning to understand, and maybe I'm wrong about this, so tell me, is that it's because that mystical experience and being able to validate a quote-unquote mystical experience through the scientific method turns out to be crucial in understanding why psychedelics is so valuable. Psychedelics are so valuable mm -hmm. in all these other areas, in treating depression and PTSD and anxiety and you name it. I mean, is that right? And, and were they thinking strategically in that way, or am I just speculating off base here? 
So, you know, I think it, it turned out such that that was a, a very useful consequence, but I would have to actually say no, with the caveat behind this that, as we, we've described, I showed up once that study had started. So I'm, I'm filling in the blanks of speaking for, you know, Roland, uh, it, who certainly was the heavy player in terms of making this this decision. Um, it it really is because he was, um, I think he would he would endorse uh, this is correct as as just absolutely obsessed with understanding transcendental experiences in the mm. human being from his own meditation practice and from other interests. Just this idea that people report on certain drugs that they're describing these states that are purported to be indistinguishable to some of these states that people only achieve after years of developing a meditation practice and sometimes never achieving those states despite really trying to develop those practices or in these sort of once in a lifetime life-changing experiences that are our, our world's history and religion and literature is is filled with whether it's you know Ebenezer Scrooge or uh, Saul on the road to Damascus these kind of extraordinary experiences that kind of transform people's lives the whole idea that you could like increase the chances of that having by by throwing in something into someone's bloodstream that's going to have effect on a subtype of serotonin receptor. I mean, that's really it, you know, like not that the research is going to be able to validate the ontological validity or nature of those experiences, but but what's going on there? Like what like these these states that people have been writing about from different traditions, you know, for thousands of years, these extraordinary experiences. And, and to be clear, I'm talking about outside of drug use, both including, but the, the large majority outside of drug use. But the idea that psychedelics are a way to kind of turn the knob up on the likelihood of those types of experiences. And then we can study them and do all kinds of things with them. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you start doing studies, I guess you and folks at NYU and other institutions, looking at the value of psychedelics in helping people deal with the anxiety and depression involving struggling with cancer or even terminal illness. I mean, for these things to work in helping people through such fundamentally transformative and maybe life-ending, you know, passages in their life, there just has to be something, there has to be something almost mystical or something, maybe not, but I mean, mystical at the core. It's part of explaining why psychedelics are working as effectively as they are. Very often that, yes, yes. And there are exceptions. It's not a a perfect correlation, but yeah, when it really works, chances are you have one of these full Monty mystical experiences where (laughs) they're describing this complete sense of oneness with the universe and the timelessness and spacelessness and the noetic quality. You know, the person's describing it. And sometimes like you just, you just start checking off the categories in your head And, and they're putting it in their own words and whatnot, but God, they just like check, 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 you know, like you just, when you see the real deal, it's just, it's, it, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's always such a great reminder about why we're doing this, but there is this, this sense that like, yeah, that, that is a, and again, I, scientifically, I don't want to say it, it's necessary or critical because we do see people with lower, there's also, we've played with this. It may be that an insightful experience is a complimentary, but but distinct type of experience where Mm -hmm. you can have an insightful experience that's not, let's say, with lots of personal realizations that aren't necessarily of the mystical variety. So there's other things going on, but certainly for for the biggest psychological factor that seems to be uh, involved and and probably causing, uh, playing a a role in that causal chain of these really transformative experiences seems to be these mystical states. Yeah. So there is, you're saying that people obviously do derive benefits even when they don't get into that full-blown mystical state, but that there is some correlation between the intensity and maybe, uh, I don't know whether beauty is the right word, of the mystical state occasioned by the psychedelic use and being able to treat the condition. Right. Yeah. It, it's a, it, And the way I look at it, it's it's amazing enough that the subjective experience that we we measure like about six hours after psilocybin, basically when it wears off before they go home, the nature of the subjective experience there is, it's amazing that there's any correlation, any relationship between, you know, the, the reductions in their cigarette smoking six months later or reductions in their cancer, uh, cancer-related depression and anxiety six months later. So, but those aren't perfect correlations. Um, so yeah, Mm -hmm. you do see people with, you know, in some, you know, you don't get every aspect. Sometimes you don't get the oneness, but you get some of the ineffability and you get a little bit, you know, you get shades of, you know, timelessness, let's say, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, and I should say, this is not a, I I totally consider us in our infancy and even understanding this construct of mystical experience. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to work with and, and. We have ways to measure it, but like other subjective experiences, you know, we're ultimately measuring just that what people are reporting 
uh, about their right. experience. Well, you know, yeah. there, in Michael Pollan's book, he quotes you. I don't know if you regret this or not, or not. But he says, "Yeah, Matthew talked about that. There's some psych- psychedelics. It's almost like the dope slap effect." Right. <laughs> right. I mean, ex- explain what you meant there. I can thank Michael for the, that highly scientific sounding yeah. um, theoretical concept. <laughs> but yeah, like you know, and and I think it 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 came. We talked several times uh, during the course of those years when he was working on the book. But I think I mentioned this. In um in London, uh, we were both there for a psychedelics meeting, and he, and we had dinner, and and after a few glasses of wine, he keeps pushing. That's I've learned that's a good technique <laughs> if you're a journalist wanting to, you know. But he's like, "How does this really work, Matt? How does this, you know?" And 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 it's just like people are dope slap out of their story. It's like and and that's the commonality. Like whether that story is like you're stuck in depression and I'm a failure and I'm just wired the wrong way and God's punishing me and all of this, these, you know, or it's, oh, I'm just a smoker. I've tried a million times to quit. I'm not going to be able to quit. I started so young. It's just my brain's just used to it. Blah, 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 blah. Story, story, story. You know, yeah, good luck. Keep telling yourself that and expecting to step out of that, you know, pattern. But people are stuck in these suboptimal patterns. And I think of it all as addiction, whether it's, a nominal substance use disorder addiction, or it's addiction to a certain way of thinking. And both, whether it's depression or it's uh, substance use disorders, it's like there's both behavioral and, you know, emotional cognitive manifestations. It's, it's primarily behaviorally defined an addiction by behavior, you know, like you're taking the substance, but obviously with the cognitive and emotional, um, uh, you know, whole you know, um, syndrome that surrounds it and, and, and just the opposite with the depression. So I, I mm-hmm. see these as sort of like very much more related disorders than, than modern psychiatry would, would, would admit. And I think one of the, 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 the cool derivative benefits of psychedelic research is they may, because they seem to be working for these different disorders and, and, and dope slapping people out of their story, they're perhaps helping us to understand the nature of these disorders. What are those transdiagnostic commonalities between these supposedly separate disorders? Well, you know, there was something about that quote that reminded me of the story of, about Bill Wilson, right? You know, that one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and who, you know, many people will know this story that in his later years, he begins to experiment with psychedelics. I can't remember if it was LSD or not, and starts to talk about how this could be useful in helping people in AA achieve the kind of spiritual self-awareness that is an essential part of freeing themselves of their addiction to alcohol. I mean, Bill Wilson obviously was persuaded by his colleagues at AA to stop talking about that, but it seemed like it was a fundamental early insight analogous to the dope slap effect you're talking about here. Right, and I think it's important to remind people of that history and that the fact that he advocated for it so after so many decades of the existence of AA, this thing that he was foundational in creating, and part of the dogma that built up is no, you know, you know, medication or substance use, you know, you know, as part of treatment. Period. But I mean, here he was; his experiences were so profound that I mean, he told folks, "Yeah, folks that that don't get that that whole thing about giving up to something bigger than yourself, like, like here's something for them." Right. Like they they can they can at least have a shot at at getting that step if they try this under the right conditions. I mean, it's just I'm just so impressed that he even made that attempt, Mm -hmm. you know, at at the time. And, uh, 
Yeah, it, it's unfortunate, but um, it's good to remind folks of, of well, that Well, he history. did it, I guess, during an era in the 50s when really interesting people, famous people, right, were experimenting with LSD or or mescaline or psilocybin, I think, right? It was the first psychedelic renaissance back in the late 50s, early 60s, before it got shut down, and that right. we now see reemerging. Folks like Cary Grant were saying they were getting LSD in therapy, and it was amazing, you know? Yeah. I mean, lots of celebrities then were, were talking about early you know, having had this therapy and that it really benefited mm -hmm, them. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, I mean, yeah, folks forget that history. It's like, it, that was, this is before it showed up on the street at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there was another quote that you, uh, in Michael's book about where you said that in some respects, doctors and researchers play the same role as shamans and elders. And on the one hand, you know, you're warning against the guru complex that can come into the whole psychedelic therapy area and the, and the need for professionals in this area to stay grounded in scientific integrity and professional therapeutic integrity, but you do make the analogy to shamans and elders. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a bit. I think the commonality is that we have to place, th these substances are best used, most optimally used in, in, a, in, a, in a rich cultural context, one in which there's ideally sanctioned use, there are experts, and there's a framework for using them. There's sort of a, a lot of commonalities there, you know, the whole idea that a lot of us may have been exposed in, in this society, you know, something one does when they're a teenager led by another clueless teenager. It's the idea is like, no, no, this is something that you actually get the society's experts. If it's a young person doing it, they're with the elders of that society of whatever type, whether it's in, in the modern era, we're talking about, you know, the professional, someone with a, you know, someone who's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, et cetera. Um, in, in the clinical context. So there are some commonalities, but I think there's a whole lot of dangers and over. Um, but like, we can't pretend that we're, we're shaman, right? That's not our tradition in modern medicine. If psilocybin is approved as a, as a therapeutic, I think there's all kinds of dangers in sort of adopting frameworks that we're not experts in, that we don't you know, have a, a, you know, a claim of, of that cultural tradition. And there's nothing wrong. Like we have our own culture and there's a whole lot of wisdom in these sort of subcultures that we have. So the, the, the ethics that are taught within the practice of medicine, within clinical psychology, within social work, within nursing, you know, the, these sort of the professional boundaries and the framework that is that exists and is being developed for psychedelic therapy. I mean, you know, this is our sort of like our, our modern day, I don't want to say, there's no, no not perfect terms because I say modern day, but like indigenous societies still exist. And I don't want to say Western because that doesn't mm -hmm. really, you know, you see what I'm getting at, but mm -hmm. like whatever we call modern medicine, you know, we bring psychedelics into modern um, medicine. There's going to be some, you know, commonalities with shamanistic practice, but not much. And we have to have the right Goldilocks of level of, of yes, you know, there are those some kind of common wisdom lessons, but we also got to, rely on, 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 the, on the strengths of our own cultural traditions uh, that are supervising the use of these mm -hmm. substances. And, and we don't want to be insulting to other cultures by pretending that we're part right. of something we're not. But I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you have huge optimism here. I saw you quoted saying that it seems fair to characterize psychedelic therapy as a paradigm shift in psychiatric treatment. Right. And that aside from therapeutics, psychedelics hold incredible potential, you said, as tools for psychological and neuroscientific inquiry. I mean, so do you really see this revolutionizing psychiatry within the next generation? Yeah. And in fact, you know, that, that second part you said, Ethan, really, you know, 
makes it an even larger statement in the sense that not only do I think it's going to like transform psychiatry, but even that kind of small potatoes compared to what it's really what it's poised to really tell us, you know, about like the nature of the mind. I mean, that's I mean, arguably the most important thing we could possibly ever know. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it underlies everything else. But, yeah, I think it's poised that psychedelics are poised to be a paradigm shift in psychiatry. Does that mean that they're going to work for everyone? No. You know, does it mean that there that there aren't any risks to their use? No. Um, but I do think so based on the data, there's a good shot that they're going to be able to help a larger portion of people for a number of disorders who haven't been helped by traditional, you know, existing treatments, including medications. And the other aspect of them being paradigm shifting is that the treatment model is one where you're only administering one, two or three times and you're seeing effects that are lasting in many cases, you know, six months a year and presumably for a lot of folks like the rest of their lives. So that's the paradigm shift, especially because we're getting to the psychological underpinnings of these disorders. Tobacco addiction is more than just, you know, quelling the response at the nicotine receptor. It's about the role this substance is playing in your life, the priorities in your life, the examples you're setting for your kids, all these things that run through your mind when you tell yourself you want to quit smoking, you know, and, and that's just, you know, quote unquote, just smoking. I mean, that's not even like, you know, heroin addiction or heavy alcohol addiction, which you know, although tobacco is more deadly in the long run, you know, these are other addictions with stronger destruction of quality of, of, of life. But I'm curious, in your research, right, it's been almost entirely about psilocybin. And mostly one sees psilocybin and then to some extent MDMA, a, a quasi-psychedelic, as the two principal drugs of investigation and the two that are most likely to be approved in the next few years for treatment of PTSD in the case of uh, MDMA and for treatment of um, intractable depression in the case of psilocybin. But I'm curious, and I've heard people say, well, the problem with LSD is it's a lot like um, you know, uh, uh, psilocybin, but, you know, because the experience is like, you know, twice as long, if not more, just simply conducting research with it. I mean, having to pay the clinicians and keep people there and the, the whole thing, it just makes it usually more onerous. But I'm curious, are you looking at, do you think you, do you see yourself looking at other psychedelics? And are the reasons why I don't hear you talking as much about DMT or ketamine or mescaline? Yeah, so absolutely interested in these other psychedelics. The it, um, in the short term, uh, so uh, we're going to be starting a study of LSD in the treatment of chronic pain. Um, we're probably within a couple of months from starting that study, so we're at the sort of the last steps of uh, hopefully getting that approved. It's with the FDA, you know, right now, but fingers crossed as we move through that process. I absolutely think, you know, that. Well, I would say, you know, the time course, you know, the five to six hour time course for psilocybin is is a big reason why a lot of the modern research has, has used psilocybin rather than LSD. But frankly, the most important reason, at least at the beginning, was that LSD was more controversial. Now, pharmacologically, like, right, they're, other than the time course, they're basically identical in terms of any practical in any you know, risk-benefit ratio analysis. I've heard you refer to these drugs, and I think some others, as the classic psychedelics. What are the classic psychedelics, and how, does that, how is that different than the non-classic psychedelics? 
Yeah, it, it means that they activate a subtype of serotonin receptor in the brain, the serotonin 2A receptor. But people will recognize when I start to list what these classic psychedelics are that they basically feel the same or if you've heard or experienced them yourself. So so psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, and, and, and DMT, which is an ayahuasca. Those substances, more or less, they, 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 they feel similar to each other people. Now, smoked DMT is going to be more intense, but when you, one takes DMT in the form of ayahuasca, um, which is orally active, it's very much in that category of those others, the LSD, um, psilocybin, mescaline. Um, and then, so those are sort of the core, the, the, the classic psychedelics. The ones that aren't classic psychedelics, a couple of big categories there. One are the, the NMDA antagonists, so the ketamine, the PCP family. And, and then another uh, big one, it's sort of in a class by itself in terms of what you know people actually take out out there in the real world, but MDMA. So it's a serotonin releaser. So it's it, it's it's a serotonergic psychedelic. In other words, it has effects on serotonin like the classic psychedelics, but it interfect, interacts with the serotonin system in a different way rather than activating and mimicking serotonin as a subtype of serotonin receptor. It causes serotonin to be released from a num number of, of, of receptors. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so for you, do you see yourself doing research in the future on... DMT or ketamine or, or mescaline? Or is it yeah, absolutely. We did the first blinded research with Salvinorin A, which is another, you could consider it a non-classic psychedelic. It's an opioid antagonist. Um, that's very, very, in one sense, very similar to DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT, these smokable tryptamine psychedelics. Um, Salvinorin A is smokable, and that's how we administer it or will vaporize. Um, so I have a, a lot of interest in these. Yeah, I mean, gosh, who couldn't? Yeah. Who wouldn't be interested in a compound where someone like smokes it and then a few minutes later starts talking about seeing aliens? I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you're interested in behavioral pharmacology, it's like, what the hell? Like that's yeah. So absolutely, I'm fascinated. Not only in terms of the just understanding those effects, but but also their therapeutics. But absolutely, I mean, the reason the research has largely been with psilocybin is just one of precedent and one of I've recently made the argument and the pitch to the FDA. Hey, look, 20 years with psilocybin has proceeded safely with the right, you know, uh, safeguards. Hey, it's, uh, it's now time to, to, to do research with LSD because in fact, there's more of a safety record still with LSD. Far more people were given LSD in those earlier mm -hmm. years. Matt, I'm curious your opinion. You know, I've heard people say, and I don't know if this is true or not, that one thing about Ibogaine is that whereas most of the psychedelics, mostly what they're doing is they're, as you put it, sort of, sort of resetting the story, breaking an old destructive narrative, right? Through that mystical insight or other types of insight or whatever it might be, especially when done in the therapeutic context. But that Ibogaine maybe does that and it does something else to the human organism, unlike the other psychedelics um, that may have a more lasting impact. Is there anything to that or do we just not know yet? There might be. There might be. And in fact, it may be not just the human organism. And the thing that's actually pretty compelling is in is in the rat that mm -hmm. even the 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 the. What you see in the rat is that after ibogaine, there's a, there's a normalization of of the the mesolimbic dopamine system. I'll translate that. What that means is that the dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's involved with reward, and it's basically thrown out of whack with heavy levels of addiction. So instead of having mild fluctuations that regulate behavior, you see these like wild fluctuations of a lot of dopamine, and then like 
nothing and you know almost no dopamine and then a lot again you know so these wild fluctuations um w which you get more of these wild fluctuations even when you get a rat addicted to you know an opioid but but after i begin you see a normalization in other words a narrowing instead of wildly fluctuating it's fluctuating within a normal range of what you know it goes a little bit up and a little bit down which it's supposed to do that might be basically the rat version of you know the, the person saying that they're you know what do they say with ibogaine it's an addiction interrupter that the, the, it just, they just feel like their addiction has is is gone you know they're not at this crazy low where they're this low hedonic state where they're willing to do anything to get themselves out of it so now i will say though i would like to see more research we don't know necessarily that drugs like psilocybin don't do this to at least a degree i'd like to see more of these drugs in a head-to-head -head comparison i have seen case some cases where and it's not the norm, but but where folks will say even the physical withdrawal from smoking that they've gotten basically no withdrawal. Hmm. I mean, when we're thinking, say, let's talk focus about addiction, addiction to different substances. And it doesn't need these substances because obviously addiction could be to behaviors and ways of thinking that are destructive as well. But some form of dependence mm -hmm. that's self-destructive. Let's summarize addiction in that way. It, do you does your does your gut sense or some of the research suggest that certain types of substances are going to be better or worse for certain types of addictions? So that ones that you know have a kind of withdrawal, you know whether it's nicotine or, or, or opioids or, for some people, alcohol, if you don't do it every day, um, that maybe some psychedelic substances will work better for those addictions, whereas substances like cocaine or others where there's a kind of, you know, radical up and down and maybe less the daily need uh, for the drugs, that other psychedelic substances would be better for dealing with stimulants. What do you think? I, I would not make that prediction now. Uh, I... I, I my speculation is that that at least within the classic psychedelics that yes there's there are certainly variations in and how there's a coloring in, of different effects across these different substances but i my working hypothesis is that therapeutically there's that they all have the same thing in common now again this is speculation i could be wrong about that um but but there that there's nothing as specific such as oh well psilocybin is going to be better to help people quit smoking but you know mescaline is going to be better to help people quit cocaine the mechanisms by which they're ultimately working i think the the meaningful uh level of analysis are these the these sort of profound psychological transformations related to the subjective experience and i think that's you know potentially there with all of these substances mm -hmm. so i don't I think there's probably more of a future in tailoring way, different ways to use these substances, you know, so not just, you know, differences of, between molecules, but different ways of using. There might be more of a potential difference between, let's say, using, you know, psilocybin, I, I don't know, uh, oh gosh, at one extreme, we haven't even explored in the modern era. Let's see how it looks as a psychedelic therapy versus a psycholytic. In other words, meaning a, a high dose, where overwhelming dose, where the person is quiet and then we talk about it afterwards which is most of the modern research with psychedelics, or one where we give a lower dose and facilitate talk therapy. I mean, we could go back to the older research and, I mean, that was the predominant model in Europe. We don't know that that doesn't work better. So we can do that. Even within the you know, so-called psychedelic or high-dose research, you know, like, like with the treatment of addiction, with smoking, we've used cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Michael Bogenschutz treating alcohol use disorder has used um, motivational enhancement therapy. Is would what, is one better than the other? I you know I, I see that as maybe a. Uh, perhaps just as important, perhaps even more important than differences between compounds. Yeah. The, the one caveat I would throw into it, though, I do think if there's a difference, uh, it, it might, some addictions might require more, uh, s s a stronger dose, but it wouldn't really depend on what compound, but some might require just a longer experience. So I do think in some sense, there's a chance for LSD to be more therapeutically impactful, simply because the experience is longer and there's a greater opportunity that any given 20 minutes during that entire experience is, is going to be a profoundly meaningful experience. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Well, let me ask you to shift, shift gears a little bit right here, which is that, I mean, you were just in the news recently because you headed up this study on using psilocybin for smoking cessation, just got a significant grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And, you know, as I understand it, you were initially turned down, and then they came back and said, oh, it turns out we have some money to fund this, and this just happened recently. And it's the first grant, I think, to fund psychedelics research apart from ketamine, which is a legal psychedelic, but it's the first one to do it with psilocybin or any other sort of drug. And so I have a right. bunch of questions about that. I mean, first of all, with respect to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, why has it taken them so forever long to do this? And why do you think they did it finally recently? 
Well, I think, you know, kind of going back to an earlier part of our conversation, you know, perhaps strategically starting off with the, the focus on mystical uh, experiences with the psilocybin research might have, <laughs> may have not have been uh -huh. the most strategic in terms of moving it in a medical pathway for NIH funding. I don't know. I'm just being, I'm speculating mm -hmm. there, but, you know, perhaps if there was something, you know, more boring that, you know, where the research crept up and maybe they would have been more likely to fund the clinical research earlier. If, but, but at the same time, a lot of the world wouldn't have been interested this, you know, maybe Michael Pollan wouldn't have written his book. That's, you know, drastically increased interest in this area had, you know, we and others not focused on mystical experience. So, you know, it's a little hard to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, to, to cr critique that history. But, but yeah, perhaps that's some of it and, and, and might kind of, the mystical aspect might highlight the idea that, oh, this is somehow a new agey thing and it's kind of about, you know, hippies talking about astral planes and whatnot. And come on. But this you, isn't I mean, Matt, we're talking here and, about a scientific like, agency that has every ability to look at the vast research in the 50s and 60s and a little bit of research that, since then, knowing that there was real promise there. I mean, there's right. no reason. I mean, yes, that's the cultural context and hippy dippiness. But when you look at the amount of, you know, the in, all the interesting stuff that came out about psychedelics and, and alcoholism and a whole range of other conditions back in the day, um, you know, it, I mean, I, I really quite. I frankly think that when people reflect back on the role of NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, in dealing with drug addiction, they're going to see this closed-mindedness with respect to psychedelics until just the last few months, really, as really a major lost opportunity, and that probably one of the reasons why people have continued to suffer so long from drug addiction when there were things that could have been really helpful out there, but they just weren't doing. Uh, but obviously, Nora Volkow, the head of NIDA, seems to get it now. I mean, I'm curious, were there a lot of other efforts to get funding from NIDA beforehand that just kept getting shot down? Or did researchers like yourself and Roland and others at other universities just think it wasn't even worth trying? We had a few efforts here and we've had, you know, and there have been a few others of close colleagues in the psychedelic field, you know, outside of Hopkins. And there have been several efforts and they've all, and some of them have done really well scientifically. And for those not familiar, it's, it's, it's typically a two-stage process where you have scientific reviewers who are independent of like, so for example, I've served as a reviewer for NIH. I don't work for NIH, but NIH gets scientists out there and Back before the pandemic, they would all fly them together to DC or whatever. These days it's on Zoom, but um, and you evaluate the grants, then you get a score. That's only the first step. Then, regardless of whether you get a great score or a horrible score, then the institution looks at it and it could get a great score and they could decide not to fund it if it's, if it's not in their priority mission, you know, if, if, if they don't want to do it basically. Or it can have a marginal score, like, yeah, not great, but maybe kind of good enough. And they can fund it if it's something they really want to do. So there had been multiple of those grants in the either like really good or nearly perfect category that didn't get funded, um, you know, involved because they involved presumably because they involve psychedelics. Although I, I wouldn't argue with your I would agree with your history, with your characterization, Ethan, and that, yeah, the, looking at the history, you know, like, yeah, why? Why didn't NIH jump in sooner? Although I, I do want to throw in, though. The flip side to that is the, 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 the room for redemption. How thankful I am that NIH has now funded. Like, hey, this is like, it's fabulous. And, and to some degree, I can understand. It's like, even if I disagree, 
I can understand politically the National Institute on Drug Abuse is going to be, you know, their their main thing is looking at, at the bad aspects of drugs. And they, they're used to thinking about psychedelics as drugs of abuse. And so, yeah, yes, there was an uphill hurdle. But um, I mean, but, Matt, but, you're in a way you're in a catch 22 situation because you guys are submitting grants and getting near perfect scores from the scientific review process. And then they're getting shot down because of what they call priority reasons, but which are essentially political reasons and go to the profound politicization of drug abuse research funding in this country. Right. Which has been a real tragedy and something that I think far too few drug researchers have really been fully conscious of, but at the same time, you and others aren't really in a position to openly criticize the politicization of that process, because if you do so, it may reduce the likelihood of getting future grants or being asked to serve on grant review committees. So I think it's a, you know, it's a way in right. which <laughs> I, I could go on on this. And I obviously, when I had Nora Volkow on, I gave her a very hard time about this politicized process, which I think is not, you know, not what good science deserves in this country. But right. now, having broken through, Matt, do you you think we're going to see many more grants being approved for research uh, by NIDA for research on using psychedelics for treating drug addiction? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if I can do it, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I've been at it. I'm persistent. People that know me, but you know, like, hey, I'm just me. Like, if I can do it, I, I think others can do it. I, I mean, the, the what I'm hopeful for is that I don't know. I think of myself like, you know, 15 years ago, 17 years ago. Early in this field, you know, I did have folks telling me, like mentors of various types, are you sure you want to do this? There may not be a future. You have such a great pedigree, such a great future ahead of you in terms of your your career potential. And, and you know, now I did take the gamble of, 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 of doing the psychedelic research, but I could have gone the other way and said, no, I don't want to take that gamble. You know, who knows? Maybe if I had had more student loan debt that type of thing. And I thought, ah, oh, I don't want to take that gamble. And I don't have a, a freaking job because, you know, I made this decision and uh, of this risky research. What I'm hopeful for now is the young graduate students and the postdocs that are going into, you know, they're interested in this area. They see a path forward. They see the fact that, you know, not only the NIH grant, they see that, you know, John's hot, our center a couple of years ago, got a $17 million grant, the biggest philanthropic gift in Johns Hopkins psychiatry department history. They see, you know, like this, you know, NIH funding to look at psilocybin as a treatment for addiction. And they see a path forward. This is they see companies with like literally billions of dollars of investment in this area that are looking to fund like research. So these are all these new developments that I'm I think the real change is going to come from these young people that are just getting in now who are seeing this path forward. And you're just going to get a, such a larger percentage of those folks who move into the field and stay into it. So I, I have no doubt, like, how could it be? Are we going to write the history in 50 years and say, Matt Johnson was that only uh, lucky sucker that got that one, you know, psychedelics treatment grant, and then it all disappeared. I, that's not going to be the case, right? Uh -huh, like, uh -huh. So I'm very hopeful. And Matt, well, I, I, I don't want that distinction in history. No, by no, the way. listen, but hey, listen, <laughs> but you broke through, and that was a key, a key thing you did. And my God, if it turns out that you know psychedelics, psilocybin, psychedelics is incredibly effective in smoking cessation, um, I mean, that's going to be saved just monumental numbers of lives. You know, speaking of which, you know, what I also like is the fact that in your research on nicotine, there's not that many people interested in both psychedelics and nicotine. 
protein. And obviously, you and Roland are among the couple of researchers. And it's something that I've been very you know, engaged in in recent years since stepping down from DPA, the issues around tobacco harm reduction. And there's a very good journalist out there, Mark Gunther, who's writing both about psychedelics mm -hmm. and about tobacco harm reduction and what's going on there. But you recently sent me a very interesting paper looking at as more and more people in the tobacco control field are recommending that there be a prohibition on selling cigarettes with the nicotine yields they have today, and that only low cigarettes with very low nicotine yields be allowed to be sold, you know, many people are predicting that a substantial black market could emerge. And other people are pointing out, well, at least the government should be promoting e-cigarettes as an alternative. But could you just explain that paper you did and why you did it and what your findings were? Yeah. So we wanted uh, big picture. I'm just, you know, I, I just think it's crazy that we're, we're that we're considering a, a nicotine reduction hypothesis without fully considering the potential for an increased black market. I mean, it just flies in the in the face of all other. Essentially, what this means is functionally eliminating nicotine from cigarettes can eliminate it to zero level, but it could be at a functionally zero near zero level. And so when have has society ever outlawed, a, you know, a drug? And essentially, that's what that would be. Um, I mean, it would you know, be like, you know, only being able to buy, you know, near beer, O'Doul's, you know, alcohols made illegal. You know, when have we ever made a substance illegal and not seen a, a, a drastic increase in, in black market? We already have a black market for tobacco. So that's the backdrop. So I use, and I've done a lot of work over the years with both in-lab and also hypothetical simulation methods where in the behavioral economics framework, you, you ask people under certain conditions, how many folks would be willing? And we, we found that about a third of the folks would be willing to engage in black market behavior, purchase at least some of their cigarettes for the black market. And, and the other question is, as you uh, increase the price of the legal cigarettes, the ones that have no nicotine in them, do black market cigarettes have the ability to serve as substitutes? In other words, as the legal cigarettes become more expensive, will people pick up black market cigarettes as a substitute? And the data suggests they would. So there basically is a signal, and it's hypothetical methods, so there's limitations. But before moving into a policy that's going to affect millions of people, you know, we need to look more, uh, you know, more at this, at this potential for, you know, drastically expanding a black market. Yeah. So Matt, look, last question. It is. You know, most research in America and around the world on drugs that are primarily illicit is funded by the government. With psychedelics, what's different is that most of it, at least until you got this grant, has been funded by you know, some of it philanthropically, but a lot of it by for-profit, you know, people looking to make money. You know, you look at Compass, other big investment players who are, you know, putting money into universities as well. I'm curious, in what way does that affect the research um, or anything around the research that you do on psychedelics, as opposed to if all this work was being funded by the government, as opposed to philanthropists or for-profit players? It raises additional contingencies, of course. Now, I mean, to be clear, I think it's a good, I mean, hey, I, I welcome, you know, the companies that are jumping in that, that have credible plans to, to, to develop psychedelics through the FDA and international equivalent pathways. But, you know, obviously when you move into straight up in, into the for-profit realm, like, yeah, you know, that questions about, you know, are the company, is the company going to be doing things safe? You know, are they going to maximize profit even at the expense of safety, which I've tried to emphasize for the field, like is actually one in the, it's going to be, you know, if, if people aren't kept safe, like that's going to 
hurt your bottom dollar. Like if something's someone's on the front page of the New York Times, like jumping out of a window because, of, you know, they were in a psychedelic trial that what was was not hand without the appropriate safeguards, and someone did something and they got themselves hurt or something. Like that's not good for your bottom line. It's certainly not good for the patient. So it raises questions like that. Questions that are already there, but obviously the the financial incentive um, just creates you know more of a concern, but. But, you know, this is all addressable. And to be clear, I, again, I welcome, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be doing, a, so the company uh, Midison Innovations Group is really motivated to move forward with uh, picking up on our smoking cessation research and, and, and getting it to people. So this is sort of, this is sort of a, a independently congealed along with the sort of the night of funding. So we're going to be doing actually multiple trials um uh going forward examining smoke psilocybin for smoking cessation so so i'm i'm very hopeful that they get this you know that this research is successful we're going to be helping them lead this trial um and then you know that it ends up helping patients but you know in general again for the you know the various companies it's a different landscape it's in some ways very exciting but yeah it just you know clearly there are some companies that have come into the space where you, you meet some folks or you read about them and you're like, what the heck's going on here? Man? Yeah, they, they just view this as, as cannabis 2.0 in terms of the money mm-hmm. where cannabis was wherever it was 10, 15 years ago in terms of the big money making opportunities mm-hmm. and thinking this is the same thing. And it's not the same thing unless you really know this area. I right. mean, FDA approval is a different beast. But listen, it's been re- great reconnecting with you. It's been great hearing you speak at these conferences. I think what you're doing is absolutely going to be changing the world. And I think your partnership with Roland, and now you're assuming the leadership of the center at Johns Hopkins. I mean, you know, more power to you. I love the frankness and the ease with which you discuss all these subjects. So, you know, I look forward to crossing paths many, many times in the future and l- hope for that many of your studies turn out truly transforming the fields of psychiatry and even more more broadly our understandings of consciousness and uh, neuroscience. So thank you. It's been great. You're welcome. It's been great uh, reconnecting with you recently, Ethan. And and thank you for your leadership and and drug policy and now more recently including tobacco policy. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Kat Packer, Executive Director of the Department of Cannabis Regulation for the City of Los Angeles. As I was doing advocacy in the City of Los Angeles and really trying to hold the city accountable to what I felt were 
principles and, and values that we have to lead with when we're talking about cannabis policy reform. I was tapped by the, the mayor to take on the challenge uh, of advising the city in, in administering its commercial cannabis program in August of 2017. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.